God is good. Amen? Amen. We are so glad that you are here today. And I'm sitting there. It's one of those times I say, you know, should we even use that video after that powerful? It is well. But when you consider the theme of the video, it's all about surrender. Because it is well with our soul, that's exactly why we should surrender. Amen? Well, I'm sitting here. We're, we're down to the next last uh, sermon in this series called The Magnificent Seven. Seven points of surrender in our lives. And frankly, I'm glad to see the end in sight. And I'm going to tell you why. One, I've immensely enjoyed teaching this series, but it's been a very convicting series for me. Um, there are some times when I get to preach the Word of God and some things that kind of got under control in my life. I'm going, yeah, okay, that's cool. But I told David, I said, it's one of those times I almost wish I could say, does anybody feel like preaching today? You know, and not because I don't want to, but because what I want to share with you today really gripped my heart. And I realized just how short I, like all of us, all of us, come in this area. And that is in the idea of surrendering our past, surrendering our feet, surrendering how God is going to use us. And I'm pretty convinced, you know, I am very convinced that, and it's probably here in America mainly, you've heard me say this before, that we somehow have twisted things around with the gospel and we twist it around what it means to be a Christ follower to something that's so um, beneficial to us. Uh, not talking about the salvation part, because obviously that's very beneficial, but the Christ-following part. It, it's, we've become consumers of Christianity rather than missionaries of Christianity. So I'm looking forward to teaching this, but I want to tell you up front, it is all over me this morning. I've had to do some self-evaluation and will be doing some self-evaluation in the coming days. So how do we get started with this mess anyway? How, how did you become a Christian? Well, let's, let's illustrate this way. And most likely, this is somehow had happened. Um, how many of you guys and gals were ever in the military? Okay, a few of you guys, good. Now, how many of y'all went and saw a recruiter before, but you didn't go in the military, or you went in the military? How many of y'all visited a recruiter before? Yeah, yeah, about the same number of hands. Your recruiter's job is to, is to sell you on joining the military. And there are, you know, there's some really, I'm sure somewhere out there, there's some really good, good recruiter stories. Yeah, mine was truthful and honest. But the bottom line is this. Most of us will tell you that when we walked in that office and we were fresh meat and we said we were interested in joining the service. Oh, my goodness. They turned it on, you know, like, like we, were, we were the, you know, God's gift to the military and promised us the moon. Promised us the moon, told us how much we'd enjoy the military, how our T.I. would be just like our mama, you know. It's going to be a wonderful experience. It's all going to be good. And frankly, they lied. They lied. You know, it wasn't a whole lot like that at all. But again, their job was to sell us, convince us that joining the military was one of the things that we needed to do. That's what they're supposed to do. And, and then there's this kind of this flip side of the coin that I found very interesting. And this really happened a lot. Um, in the Vietnam War. In the Vietnam War, um, they had what they called the lottery, and it was not one you wanted to win. Okay, y'all remember that? Those of you who are in the 70s were teenagers, you know, late teens. Um, what would happen is they would have an, a lottery, and they draw a number, and you were assigned a number. And if it was like number four, that means that your birth date would be the fourth one they would draw. And so if you had a real low number, you were going to the military. And in those days, it usually meant Vietnam. And it was a very difficult thing. And so what would happen is when people got their lottery number, um, if it was a real low number, they would go see the recruiter. And they would like, for instance, go to the Navy recruiter. And because when you were drafted, what service did you go into? 
the army, okay? And so they would go see the Navy recruiter because here's their logic. Anything's better than the, the army. And so you walk up to a guy and says, huh, so what did you do in the service? I was in the Navy. Oh, like water? Nope, didn't like the army. You know, and then the people with the Air Force, you know, they go see the Air Force recruiter. And so, hey, what did you do in the service? I was in the Air Force. Did you fly planes? No. You like fly? No. You like airplanes? No. Well, what's the deal? Didn't want to go in the Army. See, it beat the alternative. The alternative was being a foot soldier in Vietnam, most likely. That's where everybody was going in those days. And so consequently, Army, Navy, Coast Guard, anything was better than that. And so they chose the alternative. Now, here's the crazy part, is that, you know, that's not only true with, with the services. Um, if you are old enough where you've been recruited by a college, whether academically, they'll tell you and promise you the moon, they'll wine and dine you if you have that wonderful score in the ACT or the SAT, they'll wine and dine you. Uh, perhaps you've been wined and dined by colleges because of your athletic ability. And, and frankly, often it works out. The coach may say something like this, so he'll say, I promise you lots of playing time, and you sent three years on the bench. And you go, what's up with that? How did it up with that? So there's all kinds of different recruiters that work through life. And it's true in Christianity. It's true. You know, God calls us in one sense, in a very narrow sense, we are recruiters. We are missionaries. We're the ones who are to share the gospel and encourage people to come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's what I know. When I find myself 61 years old and have been a pastor now for about half of my life, Okay, about 31, 32 years I've been pastoring. I look back and realize that I didn't do a very good job of recruiting and being truthful. Because I find myself promising people the moon. I would promise them if, if they were sick, God would fix that. If their marriage was bad, God could fix that. Um, on and on it went. And, 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 the, and the ultimate trump card, the ultimate ace, the joker in the stack was this. I would go something like this. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, nobody wants to go to hell. Yeah, sure, give me Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. I mean, you know, having to go to church and keeping rules and stuff, that's better than going to hell. So, yeah. And, and here's the deal. Here's what I found out is that that's really not biblical. You know, hell is a good motivation to get saved, but it should never be the primary motivation for being saved. And here's what I found out. God doesn't always fix your marriage. And God doesn't always heal you. When you're sick, what that does lead is to a tremendous lot of disappointment and gives God a whole lot of bad press. You know, God's a failure because some preacher said, and boy, the TV is full of this stuff. You know, you know, God, you know, some preacher said, just do this and God will do this. And God didn't do that. And God gets a lot of bad press out of that. You see, salvation begins in its simplest form with a wooing from God, a drawing from God. Uh, we call, you can call it conviction if you want to. Uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. He, God woos you to himself. And in a simplest form, it involves something very similar like this. It involves a word that we're hearing more of now, but for decades we didn't hear. And it was repentance. It repentance. It means turning from your sin. You know, it's really cool. Like when Jesus walked up to Matthew, the tax collector guy, and walked up to his desk. And, and you know, tax collectors were like the scum of the earth in the, in the eyes of the Jews and most everybody else. Um, you know, and, and Jesus just said to Matthew, follow me. I mean, he didn't give him a bunch of 
prerequisites. He didn't say, stop this, do that. But he did say, follow me. And here's the key part. The word repentance means to be going in one direction and going in another. Um, You could even say it means being in one place and then going to another place. And Matthew, all the Bible says about Matthew, is without much fanfare that Matthew got up, left where he was, and followed Jesus. And that's a pretty good biblical picture of repentance. It means leaving where you are and the path you're on and turning and following Jesus. He did the same thing with Peter out in the boat. You know, Peter, after the draw to the fish, the, the, the catch of all the fish, he says, oh, I'm a sinful man. And said, Peter, it's okay because, hey, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. So Peter left behind his fishing industry and went and followed Jesus. And Jesus began the process of transforming. So that's what's essentially what salvation is all about. You know, it's very important. I talked to a mom this week about a young child who is, is wanting to ask Jesus in their heart. And I said, the, the cool thing they need to understand, that the basic what they understand is that they are sinners. And believe me, there's some very young children who can understand that. And they understand they are sinners and they need a Savior. That's the basis for the beginning of salvation. That's the basis for making a decision following Christ. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I want to turn from what I'm doing and I want to follow Jesus. That's the essence of salvation. And let me ask you a question. Have you done that? Have you reached a point in your life? Was there a point in your life? It wasn't because your marriage was broken. God promised to fix it. It wasn't because some preacher said you really don't want to go to hell. You really want to go to heaven. Was it because you came to a point in your life that you realized that you were a sinner, you were separated from holy, holy God, and that by his grace, he would forgive your sin if you turned from it and chose to follow his son. And by faith, you did that. Is that what happened in your life? If not, we need to talk. If not, we need to talk. I don't want you coming down to the end of your life and going, you know, really, I, that's not what happened to me. I, I, I was in a bad situation. I want to get in a better situation. My, my fiance said she wouldn't marry me because she was a Christian and I wasn't. So I've been going to church because that's what I was supposed to do. And, but nothing really happened to him. We need to chat. We need to talk. And I'd be glad to do that. It kind of happened in my life. I reached a point finally where I realized that I could not be good enough to earn God's favor. And that was a very eye-opening moment because I was a three-time-a-weeker, um, sang in gospel quartets. I did just about everything you can imagine, and uh, you know, religious-wise. And then one day I realized it wasn't enough. And when I realized it wasn't enough, I turned from my sin. didn't become perfect. I just turned from my sin, and I decided to follow Jesus. I think I said last week, I thought it was pretty well-worded. I gave up religion for Jesus. And you got to make sure that happens in your life. And then begins a process, though. And that's why this kind of ties in. Because, you see, we're talking about the feet, surrendering our, our feet today. In other words, surrendering our past. And once you make that commitment, that's a beginning, not an end. It's the end of your salvation. You know, once you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're sealed. You're good. But it begins a lifetime of following Jesus. It's, it's not a lifetime of what can I get from Jesus. It's a lifetime of following Jesus, obeying Jesus, serving Jesus. And that's where we've kind of missed. We, we've kind of missed that because, again, we've become consumers of Christianity. What can the church do for me? What can the pastor do for me? What can God do for me? I still remember very well a person sitting in my office and going, you mean God, when I pray, God doesn't like have to give me what I want? What's the use of being a Christian? And that's a pretty common mentality. I, God serves me. I don't serve God. So we begin a process of, here's the key word, discipleship. Discipleship is submitting to the teaching 
of Jesus Christ. So we have that moment when we turn from our sin and choose to follow Him and under the wooing of God. And as we begin to follow Him, we become that disciple of Christ. And a disciple is there to learn from the teacher. To learn from the teacher. And that's what our journey is all about. You know, I think it was John Piper who said these words. John Piper said something like this. He said, most of us want to have an easy life, an easy death, and go to heaven. An easy life, an easy death, and go to heaven. That's just kind of the mentality of the North, particularly the North American Christian. Well, you, you're going to, listen, if you truly trust Christ, heaven's a sealed deal. But you know what I've discovered? I want to challenge you right now. Let me just pause that thought. Are you ready? I want you to prompt. No, no, I'm sorry. I want to challenge you. I don't promise anything. I want to challenge you this year to read the Gospels. I want you to read what Jesus says about following him. Okay? And then as you do that, I want you to see where we come up with this philosophy that God is there to serve us and we are consumers and not servants of Christ. Because here's the deal. You may not have... Follow Christ and you may not have an easy life. Nowhere. Listen. Nowhere is that promised. Besides some wayward preacher who needed baptisms up that year and promised the world. I can't even promise you an easy death. I, I, I can't... You know, the Word doesn't promise an easy death. But what it does promise is an ultimate eternity with Jesus Christ. When... When we sang that song, Behold our King, seated on, seated on a throne, come, let us adore Him. I was overwhelmed once again with understanding this 60, 70, 80, 90 years that we are granted here is but the beginning of our relationship and our, in our presence with Christ. It goes on forever and ever and ever. This, not, this is not even the main course. It's all heaven. It's all heaven. Now, with all that said, I want to take us on a little journey this morning. And I want to take a look at Luke chapter 9. And it's going to be kind of a, a chatty kind of sermon thing. Just kind of stay with me. I'll try not to get drugged down and chase rabbits and get boring. Um, but I really want you to just follow with me through Luke chapter 9 a little bit. And I want to show you what, it, what Jesus said. One, one instance, one instance of what Jesus said to follow him. And I just simply want to challenge us to take a look at this and say, okay, this is what it looks like in 21, 20th, 21st century. You know, what does the Bible say about that? And kind of just evaluate that and look at that today. All right? I want to look at what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, I want to look at me carefully. I don't believe in Debbie Downer sermons. Unless, you know, unless preaching the truth is Debbie Downer, then I guess I believe in them. I don't want you to get discouraged this morning. In fact, when I shared with David about the fact that I just feel like, you know, I just feel like I've failed so much in this area. And he said, don't we all? And, and we do. In fact, the amazing part is, by the time Luke chapter 9 is spoken, if my math is right, they're well in, into the ministry about two years of, maybe two years and three months of walking with Jesus. So, so let me break that down for you. For two years and maybe two and a half years, these 12 guys have walked with Jesus. I mean, they didn't, hear, they didn't hear some preacher tell about it. They didn't read it in some gospel. They lived it. They saw it. 
And even after two, two and a half years with Jesus, they're still struggling. And that's what we're going to see today. So don't think, don't think, well, so is this something I've got to master like in five years? Like if, if, I, get, if I make that commitment you talked about, Dwayne, in five years I don't get it right, does that mean I'm out? No. Discipleship is a lifetime process. When you stop learning, you stop growing. And so the following Jesus thing happens until you take your last breath. At that point, your discipleship journey is over and you step into the presence of Jesus Christ. But until then, it's a learning process. So don't leave discouraged, but nor should you leave complacent. Nor shall you leave here, should you leave here today going, well, you know, I'm okay with it. I'm going to heaven. That's that's enough. No. Again, when it's well with your soul, the love demands, love demands so much more. So I'm going to start here. We're going to start on the sermon sheet um, in a few minutes, but let me just kind of chat with you about Luke's gospel. I want to start in Luke chapter 9, verse number 27. And guys, don't worry about the screen. It's okay. Um, we're going to start in Luke chapter 9, verse 27. I'm just going to tell you my version of this. This is the Wayne Taylor translation. But the bottom line is, Peter, James, and John are invited by Jesus to go up on a mountain. And so Peter, James, and John, the other nine stay down. Peter, James, and John go up on this mountain. And what happens there is a really, really transformational thing on two levels. It really impacted Peter, James, and John but also was a transformation because they got to see Jesus in his glorified state. I loved it because the New King James says that his face was altered. In other words, physically, Jesus was altered. And he shone with the glory of, of his kingdom. And, and a couple of guys showed up for church that day that joined them. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah show up. The boys are kind of asleep, and they wake up, and they say, Oh, my goodness, look what's going on here. What is this? And Peter says, I think we all built some tents or something for these guys. And about that time, a voice thunders and says, You know, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. And they were just like so frightened by that. And all of a sudden, bam, it was over. But these three men had experienced the greatness of God, and it made an impact on them. So they journeyed down the mountain. They're coming down the mountain. And they get down there, and there's a crowd gathered. And in that crowd is a daddy, a demon-possessed boy, and a whole bunch of people, and nine bewildered disciples. Because this guy had brought his son and said, Hey, aren't y'all followers of Jesus? Yeah, we're followers of Jesus. Well, listen, um, could you cast out the demon out of my son? And they struck up the band and did all the little things they knew how to do. And guess what? Nothing happened. The demon remained in the boy. And about that time, Jesus shows up with the other three. And Jesus says, kind of, what's going on? And the father says, well, here's the deal. My, bro- my boy is demon-possessed. He throws himself in the fire, throws himself on the ground, lathers up. It's a terrible situation. And I brought him to your guys, and they couldn't do anything about it. Can you do something? He said, yeah, I can do something. And the short story is, Jesus spoke. And the demon departed. So the nine are going, wow. And the three that came down the mountain, they're going, wow. And so they walk off and Jesus then says something like this. He says, okay, guys, here's what you need to know. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be trade in the hands of sinners. Like it went right over their head. Because like 20 steps later, following Jesus on their path, they begin arguing. And what are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? 
Who's the greatest? I'm sure I can just tell you, I, I just know people, and Peter, James, and John were going, we were on the mountaintop. Now, you guys, you're a bunch of failures. You know, Jesus, you know, had to do your work, but not, boy, we were on the mountain with Jesus, and we saw all that glory and stuff, and it was incredible. And they're having this fight about who is the greatest. Because, you see, in their aspirations and their dreams, they dreamed of greatness. And isn't that what we do? Come on. In our American culture, aren't we raised with dreams of greatness? Don't we, don't we encourage our children? We want you to be, and there's nothing wrong with education. Don't you dear misread what I'm about to say. But we, we encourage our kids, be sure and get the education you can so you can attain Greatness, And often greatness may be, you know, in popularity and prosperity and those kind of things. But whatever great is in your world to find, whatever great is, we, we want our children to have it better and have it more than what we have. And we inspire our children. So many of us work all our lives saving for a time when we can experience greatness. When we can actually live the last 20 years of our lives how we want to. We don't have to go to work because we've amassed enough wealth to sustain ourselves for the last 20 years of our life. We call it retirement. That's kind of what we dream for. It's kind of what we work for. And so basically these guys are going, you know, yeah, we, we're going to be great. We, listen, we saw what happened up there and it was like incredibly, we're going to be great. We're going to be princes. You know, Jesus is the big rock star and we're little rock stars and we're going to be princes and he's going to be the king. It's going to be incredible. And Jesus, because he's God, knows what's going on in their hearts. And here's what Jesus does. He says, guys, can we talk? And he pulls aside and he brings up this little child. And the little child is standing there. He says, has him standing there by Jesus. And said, guys, here's what you need to know. Whoever receives this child, you see, see this child? Whoever receives this child receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Now, what you've got to understand about a child in those days, they had zero rights. Children, sometimes, some, sometimes because they died early, but the bottom line is just the culture, that they, had, they were like non-people. They were, so they were so marginalized. And, and when Jesus says, you see this marginalized person? This person that doesn't count. This person who has no rights. This person who doesn't even fit in the pecking order. When you receive that marginalized person, you receive me. And when you receive me, you receive my father, the one who sent me. This was like crazy. This is like a precursor to when Jesus is going to teach in Matthew a little bit later on. When he says, well, you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And Jesus is saying, well, let, let me read this last, last part. He says, for he who is least among you all will be great. If you're willing to, to serve, if you're willing to love, if you're willing to minister to these marginalized people, that is the path to greatness. Because in order to be great, you've got to be least. Now, do you understand how contrary that is? To American culture. It's crazy. 
Nowhere, nowhere virtually. I mean, there's nice people and there's, there's good, good ministry, uh, social ministries and things like that. But the bottom line is it's so unique that Jesus says, if you want to be great, he says it later on, you'll be the servant of all. So as a Christ follower, as one who began this journey of repentance and being drawn by the Father and by experiencing his grace, as you've journeyed, this is something we're going to have to fight for. Keeping in our brain that our greatness is not by prosperity or power or title. Our prosperity, our, our, our greatness is in our leastness. Our greatness is in our ability and willingness to serve a king. And when we serve the king, we serve the least of these. The marginalized people. That's incredible. It means giving your life, giving your time, giving your talents, giving your resources, giving the essence of who you are. So, are you willing? Can I challenge you today? Whether you're 20 and you've got your life before you, or whether you're 60 and you're looking at the last 15 or 18 years of your life, depending on what kind of genes you got, whether you're looking at either place as a Christ follower, as one who's on the journey with Jesus to discipleship, are you willing to see greatness as he defines it, not greatness as the world defines it? Are you willing to give him your dreams and your aspirations? Now, again, I challenge you, don't just take Luke's word for it here in chapter 9. Read the Gospels of Christ and see how that lines up. Well, that leads, and this is why I told you the beginning of the story. This is why I went up on the mountaintop with you and those things. Because in verse number 49... John now speaks up, and apparently it's really not a break in the conversation. So John speaks up, and then, by the way, now we're on the sermon sheet. And some of y'all are going, it is about time. Verse 49, well, I told Terry, yes. Terry goes, short sermon, short sermon. I said, well, Terry, it might be if I don't chase rabbits. So it might be. So there we go. We'll see. Look at verse 49. Now, John answered and said, now, now listen, this is huge. Master... We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow with us. So here's the situation. And again, apparently, John having seen the greatness of God, okay, and having seen the apparent failure of nine Christ followers who had the power initially to cast out demons and could not do it, John sees somebody who is doing what the disciples could not do. In other words, they had failed and they were doing it. They were victorious. So they saw someone. And, you know, we don't know who they were. We don't know if they were someone outside the circle of the twelve. All we know is John perceived that they were different from them. They did not follow with them. But do you see something apparent there? They were doing what? They were casting out demons. Now, even though they were different, they were doing kingdom work. They were casting out demons. And how were they casting out those demons? Come on, don't be afraid. In Jesus' name. So what John finds is they found someone who wasn't in the circle of the twelve... They were doing kingdom work. That is, they were relieving the ministry, the misery of people who were demon-possessed. 
and in the name of Jesus Christ were victoriously casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so John said, because they didn't walk with us, because they were not in our circle, and this one says we forbade them. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says we tried to stop them and could not. So what is Jesus' response to this? Look, Look what Jesus says. He says to them, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. In other words, Jesus acknowledged the fact that they were outside the circle of the twelve, but they were doing God's work in the name of Jesus Christ, and because of that, they were not against them, they were for them. Now listen to me. Listen to me. How would the world be different if we were willing to enforce, to practice what Jesus said. He who is not against us is on our side. You know, Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. What would the world be like? How would the world be different? And I'm going to use a good word here to put you all at ease. If gospel-believing churches got together for the one purpose of winning this world to Jesus Christ, how would this world be different? How different would Harrisburg be? Now, we're having Palm Sunday, and you're going to see four or five Baptist churches get together, which is a miracle in itself. But how would it be if other gospel-preaching churches got together and with a sole intent of focusing on seeing Harrisburg High School become a Christian environment. To see, to see Harrisburg become, instead of a center of darkness, a center of light. You know, on any given Sunday, about, about 1,400 people are in churches in Harrisburg. Now, if you go outside and grab a little chapel, you pick up another six or 700 people. So maybe 21, 2,200 people in any given Sunday. What if 2,000 people, what if 20% of the population could agree that it's all about Jesus Christ and it's all about evangelism? How would our town be different? Now, here's what's crazy. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. But it's so impossible. I mean, I, you got guys like, and I, I only, I'm telling my, my son-in-law told me this. I couldn't believe it. There's a guy named Perry Noble. I think most people agree Perry Noble's a pretty good gospel preacher. But 32,000 people, 32,000 people get together in South Carolina on any given weekend at the main campus and the churches of Perry Noble's ministry, the ministry of Jesus Christ. 32,000 people. Now, there, I promise you, there are people who got their dark guns and say, yeah, but I don't like that about him. And those, you know how those mega churches are? Hey, I don't see 32,000 people here. Why do we feel like we have to be rock chuckers at those who are successful? Why did John feel the necessity of picking a rock and throwing it up at some guy who was doing kingdom work in the name of Jesus Christ because they failed, he was jealous, he was insecure, so he picked up his rock and was going to throw it at someone who was doing the work of Christ? When are we going to get over rock chucking? 
When are we going to get over kingdom building? Only kingdom means my kingdom. My kingdom. Dwayne, do you wrestle with this? I do. I don't care if revival breaks out as long as it doors fill. But don't you dare bless First Baptist Church. Don't you dare bless Little Chapel. Don't you dare bless, bless Crossroads. Last time I checked, those three churches I just named are gospel-preaching churches. If God chooses to break out in revival at First or Bankston or McKinley or Little Chapel or, or Crossroads, we should say amen and let a little spill over here. Now, this is radical. But I want you to see something because it's huge. I said something. I'm going to go back. What was the root of the problem? It was John's jealousy and insecurity. That was the problem. This man was doing something what they could not do. It made him feel insecure and jealous. Listen, this church doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to Dave or Brent or Dwayne. We've got to get over our insecurities and understand we are part of a really big deal. And as God chooses to work amongst the believers, whether it has this name or that name, does not matter. But I want you to go back just one more time because I want somebody going, did he say gospel preaching churches? Gospel preaching churches. That's what he meant by the name of Jesus. Churches at the core value who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the hope of the world, folks. Now, I'm going to give you an encouraging word. We are seeing this happen on the mission field. We are seeing this happen on the mission field where, where Baptists can work with, with non-denominationals, where general Baptists can work with Southern Baptists. We are seeing this on the mission field. And our prayer and our journey is, God, and I'm speaking to me as the leader, as the senior pastor, God, move in my heart that we can have it happen in the burg. In the burg. So then he goes on this. Sorry, Terry, you're out of luck. 51 through 56. I'll, I'll try to move along. In fact, we may just end with this one. Look at this. So now it came to pass. Now, remember, we're, we're talking about our feet. We're still on the journey. It came to pass when the time had come for him, capital H, Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Let's just kind of break that apart. So, so when the time had come for him to be received up. Now, that is exactly what it sounds like. Okay? When the time came for Jesus to return to the Father. I love what John wrote when, when he spoke of Jesus. He said, he came from the Father and is going back to the Father. He came from the Father, he's going back to the Father. And the whole point was his return to heaven. The whole point was his return to heaven. But before the return to heaven, something was going to happen. Before heaven, there was a scourging. Come on now. See, you're, somebody's saying, do I thought the whole point was the cross? In order to return to heaven, he couldn't stay dead. See? So, so before, before heaven, before the ascension back, there had to be a scourging. Before heaven to come, there had to be a very long night in a garden. Where he broke and sweat drops of blood came down and he said, Father, if there's any way that this can be avoided, if there's any way that I have to go through your wrath, if there's any way that I don't have to become sin for the world, if there's any way, 
please. But if not, thy will be done. And as he agonized with the thought of becoming sin, when he agonized about the thought of of the Father's wrath, when he agonized about the physical suffering in his temporary human body, as he suffered and wrestled with that, sweat drops came down. Before heaven, there was a garden. Before heaven, there was a mock trial. Before heaven, he had to be drenched in his own blood and the spit of men. Before heaven, there had to be the physical agony of carrying a cross and being nailed to a Roman cross. And before heaven, there had to be a funeral. There had to be a funeral. It really was finished. And he yielded up his spirit. And then, before heaven, there had to be a resurrection. Come on. There had to be a resurrection. Now, the reason I took the time to tell you that is this. What's true for him could be, might be, can be true for us. You see, you're going to, as a Christ follower, as one who made that decision, as a person who's chosen to be a disciple, to follow Christ, your ultimate gig is heaven. You are going to heaven. All the demons of hell, Satan himself, all the forces of evil cannot change that fact. But before that, there might be some scourgings. You don't like that. Dwayne, I want an easy life, an easy death, and then heaven. Leave that one alone. Before heaven, there might be a lonely night in the garden. When you wrestle with God because your mama's about to die, your child's about to die, and you've got to be willing to say, God, I don't want this. But not my will, thy will be done. There might be a mock trial in your life where your friends turn against you. There might well be a funeral or two. But you keep in mind that he steadfastly, he determinedly set his face to Jerusalem on his way to heaven. But along the way was some suffering. And you tell you that as you follow Christ, there will be suffering in this life. There will be suffering in this life. But don't take your eyes off the King in heaven. Don't take your eyes off the King in heaven. Because let me tell you something 70 years is a long time until you're 60. And you realize how fast it's gone. But forever is a lot longer. (laughs) Forever is a lot longer. So he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead, before his face, ahead. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. And so what's happened is he's journeying through Jerusalem. And and again, we won't get there. We're we're going to lay that aside. But but before they get there, they need a place to stay because you can't make it to Jerusalem in one day. So he simply sends a couple of his guys ahead and says, go ahead, go to the next village and ask for a little hospitality. This was a Middle Eastern culture. And they would take strangers and they would give them a night to stay. They would give them food to eat. It's just what you did. So go ahead, go ahead to the next village and tell them we need some hospitality. Oh yeah, 
and it's a Samaritan village. Samaritans were half-breeds. The northern kingdom got interracially marriage with some other folks, and they were hated, hated, hated by the what they call the purebred Jews. The Samaritans hated the purebred Jews, and the purebred Jews hated the Samaritans. So much so, Josephus records a little after this, after Jesus' time, that Jewish pilgrims were murdered by the Samaritans. They hated each other. And before you get all fired up, some of you know what I'm... Jack, you may know a little bit of this. Have you ever had people hate you out of prejudice? You might be able to identify with the Samaritans. Before you come down and say, yeah, why do they act that way for? Well, if you'd been hated and called impure by what used to be your brethren, you may have a few scars too. You may have a few scars too. If you've ever been made fun of because your clothes have holes in it and not because it's stylish, you may have a few scars too. If you've ever been abused by a husband or by a wife, you may have some few scars too. So before you judge these Samaritans for about what they're about to do, just remember they have few scars. Remember why they were what they were. And why they were what they were is because people who claimed to be God's people started to fight by treating them like dogs. Just a thought. So they get to the village... Verse 53, they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. It's not because he was Jewish. They didn't reject him. First off, they didn't reject him because he was the king. He was the Messiah. They weren't rejecting him on that basis. They weren't even rejecting him because he was Jewish. They rejected him because he was going to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem to them represented the seat of the problem. So when, when the boys asked and said, so where's your, where's your group going? We're going to Jerusalem. Oh, no hospitality. No hospitality. They could, they've had their own culture. The culture said you would, and they would not because Jerusalem represented the hotbed of all the pain that they had endured. This is interesting. So when his disciples, James and John, the guys who had been on the mountain, the guy who wanted to toss a rock at the other guy. See, when, it's funny. When somebody wanted to stone James and John, I want you to know how James and John responded. Now, James and John wanted to forbid the other people from doing what they were doing in Jesus' name. He wanted to stop them. But now the shoe's on the other foot. So now it's James and John getting no, told no. So surely they're going to act in a different way. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Isn't that godly? Isn't that godly? Lord, do you want... Now, remember now, John had just seen Elijah on the mountaintop. This is all fresh in his mind. He saw the power of God on the mountaintop. Do you want us to call down fire like Elijah did on the prophets of Baal? What's Jesus' response going to be? I mean, they're basically saying, 
We want to do unto them as they're doing unto us. Is that how that goes? Doesn't it say something about do unto others as you'd have them do unto you? Is that what it says? So Jesus said to them, look at 55. He turned and what? Rebuked. That's just a strong, it's a, it's a Lukean word. And I'm not trying to be fancy by saying that. I read in the commentary. It's a Lukean word. It's a strong word that, that Luke uses over and over again. You know, the same word he's, he uses to rebuke fevers out of people. The same word he uses to command the wind and the waves to be still. The same word he uses to cast out demons. He rebuked them. You see the strength of that word? He rebuked them. And, and this what comes up next is in some of the earlier translations, uh, you know, the uh, earlier manuscripts. I'm going to put it in. If you've got a New King James, it's there. If you've got a, a Holman Christian Standard, it's not. And he said to them, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. He's saying, Guys, you don't understand who you are. And if there's a verse that should shout at us today as believers in America, then I'm telling you that should be it. We have forgotten what manner of spirit we are of. There will be, a, listen, there will be a time for judging lost people. But it's not now. People need the Lord. They do not need our rocks. They do not need our condescending look. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to see the grace of God. There'll be a time, but it's not now. And there will be a judge. And it is not us. It is the King of kings. It is the Lord of lords. And here's how Jesus closes it. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus says, you don't understand. This is not the time for judgment. There'll be a time. I didn't come to destroy men's life. I came to save them. And guys, that's the message of the gospel. John 3.17 says... For the Son of Man did not, or Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Saved. So as we journey, as we make this decision, as we journey then, our dreams and aspirations will change. Our definition of greatness should change. Our, our selflessness our understand, our, we let go of our jealousies and insecurities and kingdom first becomes our mentality. Kingdom first. Kingdom first. Kingdom first becomes our mentality. We, we, we let go of our judgment and instead become extenders of grace. For the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. Now, isn't that radically different from what we sometimes believe? Isn't it different from what we practice? You see why I said this is so convicting? Do you know how hard it was for me to get up here and admit that I wrestled with jealousy over other churches? But you need to know that. Now you have a way to pray for me. And I think pray for our other staff too. I don't know. I won't speak for them. 
But we have got, if we're going to see this world saved, after the commitment, we've got to be willing to disciple. We've got to be willing to journey, follow, and learn the teachings of the King. Of the King. Would you bow your heads right there? Thank you for your patience this morning. Thank you for your patience. If you're here today, and you heard something new, you may have been raised in an environment where, where good people went to church and bad people didn't, and somehow that translated to you, if I can just be good enough, that God will accept me. And today you heard about God drawing you and wooing you. You're about God's amazing grace, about turning from the path you're on and choosing to follow Jesus. You heard a little bit about God's amazing grace. You heard about, and grace, by the way, is God's unmerited favor. You heard about a man who loved you so much, he endured a Roman cross because the Bible said the wages of sin is death, and he died in your place, in your stead. He endured the full wrath of God so you wouldn't have to endure that wrath of God. I don't know if that means anything to you or not. I have a problem dealing from church terms. But if you're here today and you understand, you feel a tug in your heart and you feel like God's calling you to trust Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. My friend Brent will be standing down front. We would love to share with you the glorious good news, our gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've made that decision, there was a time when you turned from your sin and you chose to follow Christ. You left and followed. And now you're on that discipleship journey. You may be 20, you may be 30, 40, 50, you may be 70. But are you willing today to look at God's Word and honestly look what it means to be a disciple? And starting today, you can't undo But starting today, you can say, God, my dreams are your dreams. My insecurities, I surrender over to you because I'm secure in you. My jealousies have no place. My judgment has no place. Help me to see people as you see people, as lost and without Christ. I don't know how God wants to do the invitation. We'll pray in just a moment. I'll have you remain seated. The team's going to sing. The altar's open. It may be for that person who needs to come and discover God's amazing grace. It may be God's led you to some decision of commitment surrender. Might well be that. Maybe God's led you into our fellowship today. We'll try to explain that to you, what that means. Perhaps you trusted Christ, but you've never been baptized in that step of obedience. Maybe you just want someone to pray with you. However you feel that, this time is our time of decision. Thanks, God, for the freedom to share your word. Now I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to work in the hearts of men, women, students, and children. And Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen.